Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. And listen, everyone, after you hear today's episode, I don't ever want to hear again that data or economics or finance is not interesting because we have an amazing conversation and an amazing guest today, Mark Zandi, who is a very well-known American economist. He's the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. And I look forward to talking to Mark every time we have the great opportunity to have him on the show. He makes really complicated topics, very easy to understand. And I really love just how humble he is about his remarkable success as an economist. But he also gives it to you straight. He tells you which data points are important, which ones are unreliable, which ones should be ignored altogether. And it really helps you cut through a lot of the clutter and make sense of what's going on in the complicated economy. Today, we talk a lot about the labor market, and I learned several things that I never knew from Mark. We also get into immigration, what happens in the economy in an election year, and we also talk about the housing shortage and some of Mark's ideas on how we could restore some affordability to the housing market. So we have a great show for you, and with no further ado, let's bring on Mark Zandi from Moody's Analytics. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages, until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash pockets. Fundrise.com slash pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Mark Zandi, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be with you. For those of our listeners who are new or didn't hear your last episode, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your career at Moody's? Sure. Uh, I'm the chief economist of Moody's. I uh, 
joined Moody's a while ago now, 15, 16 years ago. I sold a company that I had formed in 1990 to them uh, and I've been with them ever since. Uh, so uh, I've been a professional economist for hard to believe, but over 30 years. So I've seen a lot of ups and downs all in all the rounds. When you were here on the show last time, we sort of ended with this term that you had coined the slow session or oh, that you had been using to right. describe the economy. Can you remind us what a slow session is and if your thoughts about it came to fruition? Yeah, slow session, uh, and you can look it up on uh, in, in Google. You can Google it. Uh, there's a URL there that uh, one of my colleagues uh, purchased. Uh, oh, nice. it, it's, uh, yeah, uh, for nine bucks a year, apparently. So uh, not, not bad. Um, slow session, uh, not a recession. Uh, so the economy isn't contracting, going backwards. But an economy that's not going anywhere uh, quickly, kind of a slow session. Uh, I have to say, uh, 2023, of course, not over yet, but pretty darn close, is going to turn out to be a lot better than a slow session. Uh, not only did we avoid a recession like we thought, but uh, it was a really good year in terms of growth. GDP is kind of what economists use to kind of gauge the broader health of the economy. That's the, all, the value of all the things that we produce. That's going to grow two and a half percent on a real after inflation basis in the year, and that's a that's a good year. Uh, I mean, typically, kind of think of two percent as kind of the the benchmark. You get two percent, you're doing just fine, especially when unemployment's so low, when it's sub four percent. But two and a half percent is great. So it turned out to be a much much better year than uh, certainly most people feared, and and even better than I had expected. And what do you attribute that resilience to? A bunch of stuff, but up, uh, you know, there's a list, but I put at the top of the list, um, the supply side of the economy really surprised, uh, meaning uh, we got a lot more productivity growth during the year. Uh, and we can peel that onion back too if you want, uh, but uh, productivity kind of came back to life. You know, one thing that might be going on is all those people who quit their jobs back a couple, three years ago, they've now taken on jobs that they, uh, think better of. They, they're more suited to their talents and skills and they're better paid and they're happier. And we can see that in surveys. And that probably translates through to higher productivity. But, you know, remote work might be playing a bit of a role. I think it's way too early for AI, but, you know, uh, you know that may play a role down the road. Other, the other big thing uh, is labor force growth. You know, a number of people, you know, kind of out there uh, work working and looking for work. That has been very strong, surprisingly. And part of that's just more participation. More people are coming back into the workforce. Uh, participation rates aren't quite back to pre-pandemic, but they're higher than I would have thought they would have been if there had been no pandemic, just because uh, the retiring uh, baby boom generation. And then immigration has been boom-like. And of course, that poses a whole slew of questions and challenges. But one of the benefits of that is you've got more folks out there working and looking for work, and that adds to growth. So we because the supply side of the economy grew more quickly, surprisingly so, that allowed the the GDP, the amount of stuff that we produce, to grow more quickly without any inflation, with inflation coming back in. So I, I can wax on, but that's kind of, I think, at a high level, the most important factor you know, resulting in the surprisingly good economy. Great. Let, let's dig into that a little bit more because you mentioned a couple of things, I think, that are going to be really interesting for our audience one of them was about labor force growth. Um, you know, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of people leave the workforce. And as you said, it's starting to come back. 
You also mentioned that immigration is fueling a lot of the labor force growth. Is that legal migration, illegal migration, a combination of the both? It's got to be a combination of both. Uh, it, certainly the former legal immigration is, is up. I mean, that got crushed during the pandemic and uh, for lots of obvious reasons, and that's made its way back. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's certainly adding to the uh, number of folks out there uh, working. But, you know, I, I do think we've seen a, you know, it's clear we've seen a surge in uh, undocumented workers. Now, and I'm sure that's adding to jobs and payroll and labor force. But you know, here's a kind of a technical point. You know, these estimates, these numbers are based on surveys. And if the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the keeper of the survey, goes to someone who's undocumented and say, are you working? I'm sure that I'm pretty sure that undocumented worker may not want to respond to the survey. So, uh, you know, I'm sh I'm sure undocumented workers are finding their way into the workforce and adding to labor force, but I'm not so sure how much of that is behind these really good numbers that we're observing. Got it. So in the numbers and the data that you provide in your report, which comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that is mostly reflecting legal migration, but there might be even more labor force growth. It sounds like that is not measured by traditional methods. Got it. Exactly. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, the data is a kind of a uh, imprecise representation of reality. And this all data is an imprecise representation of reality. In this case, it's quite imprecise. And my guess is, my sense is that, you know, we've seen very strong labor force growth, a strong immigration, but it's probably been even stronger than, than we think it is in the data that we're observing. That's super interesting. I, I mean, one of the questions I'm constantly wondering about is when you look at the total number of job openings in the United States right now, it's come down a little bit over the last couple of months, mm -hmm. but it's still, I think, eight and a half million, somewhere around there, pretty high. Mm -hmm. And even if, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, even if we got back to pre-pandemic levels of labor force participation, it still wouldn't fill the need or fill all of those jobs. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the arithmetic, but I'm not sure that's reality. Uh, you know, I'm not sure I believe in those unfilled positions. Okay, now I'm going to speak to you as a, an employer. I hire lots of people. I employ lots of people. Yeah. You know, I've got a couple hundred economists around the world that kind of in my world, you know, reporting up to me. And you know, what's happened is it's costless to open up a position and just, you just leave it there. It doesn't mean you're going to hire anybody. It, you know, you could slow walk that forever. And that's what I think is going on here. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's not like there's, uh, you're getting dinged for, you know, having that open position. And here's the other thing. If you work in a big company, a multinational like I do, the human resource function is a machine. You know, it's a very complex kind of machine and apparatus. You really don't want to shut that thing down because once you shut it down, to get it back up and running is going to be incredibly painful. So you kind of keep it running, but at, you know, uh, less than full force. And that's what's going on here, I think, in a lot of companies. So they, you know, those open positions don't mean what I think people think they mean. Uh, which is interesting because the economics profession, if you go back a couple, three years ago, there was this whole, even sooner, more recently than that, you know, uh, smart folks were saying, oh, we're, we've got to have a recession. We've got the Fed's, we got all these open positions. That means the labor market is really tight. The only way uh, we're going to get cool the labor market off and get inflation back down is by jacking up interest rates and pushing the economy into recession. So they they pinned a lot of that view on all these open positions. But 
without actually, I think, understanding. And I guess you wouldn't really understand unless you're actually a business person doing this, doing it actually, that, you know, there isn't as many open positions out there as people think there are, they are. That is a great take and, and one I haven't heard before, but it makes total sense because you hear a lot right now about the concept of labor hoarding, where people basically, you know, businesses don't want to lay off employees or more hesitant to lay off employees than they were in the past because how tight the labor market was, especially, you know, two years ago or whatever. And this kind of seems like an extension of that almost where people might be opportunistic. Like you post a job and if someone fantastic comes along that you, you know, you would love to have a couple of years from now, you would take advantage of that, but you're not necessarily eager to fill any of these positions with any sort of urgency. You, you nailed it. That's exactly right. Uh, and you just want to keep those resumes coming in. You want to take a look, you might have a conversation or two, uh, but it doesn't mean you're actually going to uh, hire that person, sign on the dotted line. And I think that's, you know, a lot of what's going on here. And, you know, in times past, uh, that was less the case, you know, before uh, kind of online job matching and searching, you know, companies, if they had an open position, they had to go to the, the newspaper and put a help wanted ad. And that was expensive. I, I don't, you, you may, you, probably people don't realize this, but, you know, if you go back in the day, probably 25 years ago, New York Times was a big client of mine and I, they made a fortune on help wanted advertising. It was like, I don't know, crack cocaine margins. I mean, it was like <laughs> incredible business. The newspapers were the most single, most profitable industry on the planet. The pharmaceuticals were a close second, but the newspapers are number one. And that's because, you know, uh, the cost of doing that. But for the business person, that was costly. So, you know, if you weren't actually going to hire somebody in any reasonable time frame, you wouldn't keep posting online. I mean, excuse me, you wouldn't keep posting help wanted, right? You wouldn't get it put in the newspaper. But online, you know, the costs are, if there is any cost, you know, there's some if you go LinkedIn, I guess, or some other, you know, uh, job searching sites, but it's relatively modest in the grand scheme of things. So given that, and we talk about this on the show quite a lot, there's a lot of different labor market data, none of it perfect, as you pointed out. But when you look at sort of the big picture, the aggregate of all the information, you look at Mark. What are your feelings about the strength of the labor market right now? I feel great about about the labor market. I mean, it's rip-roaring. I mean, you know, it's uh, sub 4% unemployment for two straight years. Uh, last time that happened was uh, in the 1960s, and then that's the only time, other time in history, I think, uh, that that's been the case. Uh, lots of jobs. Uh, you know, job growth is moderating, but that's by design uh, because the Fed's trying to cool things off and get inflation back in the bottle. Wage growth is... Good. Uh, you know, there's lots of different measures, but it, I, you know, if you look at the plethora of the data, it says four percent wage growth, and that now is higher than the rate of inflation. And that's that. If you look at wage growth across all wage tiers, across the wage distribution, low wage workers, high wage workers, uh, everyone is getting wages that are increasing at a rate that's faster than the rate of inflation. And that's been the case now for all of 2023. So that's that's all really good. Um, you know, the the probably the best thing. Quit, quit rates have come in, which is, I think, consistent with the moderation in wage growth. And that's probably good because that was just, that was things were getting heated. Uh, hiring has come in. It's more consistent with kind of pre-pandemic. But the really, and you mentioned this in the context of labor hoarding, really important thing is layoffs remain very, very low. I mean, we're talking today on, 
you know, uh, on a Thursday in December, we get the unemployment insurance claims data, which is a read on the number of people that lost their job and say, hey, can you help me out and get a check? Uh, that remains extraordinarily low, close to a couple, 200,000 per week, which, you know, that's consistent with a rip roaring labor market. So if you wanted to pick one part of the economy to say, to, 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 to highlight how well things are going, it is the job market. It is it is very good, and it's it's across industry. It's cro- it's coast to coast. It's not like one part of the country is doing great, another part's not. You know, it's uniformly the case across the country. I think that's really important because there are a lot of high profile, or when a big tech company lays people off, that makes the news, and I think that distorts a lot of the underlying data about what's going on with the labor market that although some of the big companies were laying off maybe six months or a year ago, that overall, that is not really the case. Um, You know, initial claims, as you said, Mark, are extremely low. Continuing claims, I think, are going up a little bit, but are still low in historical context. So um, it shows a lot of strength. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we hosted on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to close on your next rental. So why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. 
Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Mark, given what you said about the labor market, can you tell us a little bit more about your outlook for this year, 2024? I'm uh, positive. I'm upbeat. Uh, you know, we may not get the same kind of growth in 24 that we got in 23, but that's okay. Uh, you know, get GDP growth around two. That's you know very consistent with a, a good solid year. It'll keep on create help create a lot of jobs and at least certainly enough jobs to keep unemployment you know at at or around four percent. So it, it, it should it should be a good year. I mean the key to uh, the economy obviously is you and I as consumers, Dave. You know if we keep spending, particularly if you keep spending, you're, it's key that you keep spending. Me personally, I'm doing a very good job of it. <laughs> Although you're in Amsterdam, you're you. You're not going to help out the U.S. economy from from Amsterdam. Oh, but, uh, I I come in hot every time I come visit. Though I'm going skiing, I'm doing fun stuff. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we need those uh, those dollars. Uh, but as long as the consumer hangs tough and does their thing, uh, you know, and spend, uh, you know, not with abandon, uh, but just enough, uh, we're good. We're golden because they drive the economy and all the forces that influence consumer spending look pretty good. We talked about jobs. We talked about wage growth higher than the rate of inflation. We talked about unemployment. You know, the stock market's at a near record high. Housing values are pretty, they've kind of gone flattish, but they're they are way up from where they were just a few years ago. Uh, uh, lower income households are under more financial pressure and they have taken a bigger hit from the previously higher inflation. And so they have borrowed against their credit cards and taken on consumer finance loans and are now paying a lot more in interest because of the higher rates. But uh, middle income and high income households, they have not borrowed. Uh, and they have done a really good job of locking in the previously low record uh, interest rates through various refinancing waves. The average uh, rate on an existing mortgage is 3.5%. So that gives you a sense of, you know, it's amazing, right? So people are, you know, really insulated from the higher rates. Uh, and then there's still a, a fair amount of excess savings, saving that got built up during the pandemic. Again, high income, high middle income households have most of that. And uh, they're, you know, households are sitting in their deposit account as cash and they call on it when they need it and, and are used, have, have used it to supplement their income. So, you know, if you kind of add up all the things that drive consumers and their spending behavior, it all looks pretty good. And, you know, certainly consistent with the idea that they'll, They'll hang, hang tough, stay in the game, and allow the economy to move forward without you know, suffering a recession. Now, now, obviously, a lot of risk, a lot of things to worry about. There always is. The, the thing that makes 24 kind of unique is because we have a, an election coming, mm -hmm. and we could talk about that if you want. But that that does pose some potential threat, uh, given just how fractured our politics are. But, uh, but did, you know, abstracting from the things that are kind of low probability the kind of the the most likely scenario is that we have another you know reasonably good year i do want to get into the political question but before we do i just would love your opinion given your belief that there is remaining strength in the us economy 
How do you feel about the Fed's recent, I don't know if you really call it a pivot, but their more dovish approach in the last couple of weeks? Well, I'm all for it. I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I was perplexed you know, back previously when they still thought they'd raise rates in 2023. I thought that that made a lot less sense to me in the context of of fading inflation, uh, you know, everything suggested that they uh, could pause. And now they're forecasting three quarter point rate cuts in 2024. And that makes sense in the context of uh, inflation moderating and all the trend lines there look really good. Uh, it feels like by this time next year, we'll be within spitting distance of the Fed's target without any rate hikes and, and some rate cuts. Uh, the only thing that's keeping inflation from its 2% target, the Federal Reserve has a target of 2% on uh, one measure of inflation, is the growth in the cost of housing services. And that goes back to rents. Uh, and as as you know, Dave, rents have gone flat to down for the past year. And so that's going to translate through uh, in the slower growth in the cost of housing services over the next year. And as that happens, uh, overall inflation is going to get back in the bottle, so to speak. So, you know, I forecast lots of stuff, some things I'm confident in, some not so much. Inflation coming back to target by this time next year, if we have this conversation next year, uh, and I'm on the record here now, uh, I feel confident in that. I, I, I think that's very likely to happen. You know, stuff could occur, but that's very likely to happen. And if so, that would be consistent with rate cuts. So I'm I'm all, I'm all on board with that. I, I certainly hope you're right. And I do just want to take a minute to explain something that Mark just said, which is uh, rents have been one of the main things that have been keeping one of the main headline inflation indicators that you hear about the consumer price index up over the last couple of year um, year or so. But the way that it's collected for the CPI lags quite a bit. And so that is why we see inflation numbers reflecting higher rent. Whereas if we look at some of the data I look at or a lot of the private sector data into rents, you see, as Mark said, they have been flat or even fallen in some markets. And so the Fed, even though they, you know, the CPI uses this older historical data, they can see from private and other data, data sources that the rent pushing up inflation is likely to end. Uh, so that is, I believe, Mark, a, a big basis of your hypothesis about inflation coming down. Yeah, yeah you, you explained that very well, Dave. That's exactly right. Yep, exactly right. Thank you. You mentioned <laughs> A, A plus. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll take I'll put it. my professor hat on. You mentioned that uh, an election year could influence the economy. Can you tell us a little more about your thinking on that subject? Well, I do worry about our fractured politics. They are a, you know, a mess. Uh, and uh, I think it's likely that the election is going to be close. Uh, feels like it's going to be former President Trump against current President Biden again. You know, obviously a lot of script to be written uh, over the course of the next few months and in the year, but that feels like the most likely scenario. And that argues that it's going to be a very close election. And if it's a close election, and when I say close, you know, the, it's going to boil down to five, six, seven states. Uh, and it probably boils down to, you know, one county, two counties in each of those states. Because at the end of the day, it, it's really about, like, I live in F Pennsylvania. That's a swing state. And the swing county is Chester County, the county I live in, because it's a suburban county. It's kind of a purplish county. In fact, 
I joke, my wife is going to determine who's going to be the next president uh, <laughs> because we live on a circle. The circle is a mile in length in Chester County, and it's some legacy kind of farmers and um, you, you know, kind of folks you think are re- kind of Republican. And then you've got a bunch of newbies, the Vanguard employees, because we live very close to Vanguard, and got a lot of Vanguard executives coming in, and they are more progressive, kind of Democrat. In fact, I, I could go on and on about my neighborhood. It's, really, <laughs> it's it's a story in and of itself. But the way the elections have gone recently, they, it really could come down, not probably not to one vote, but you do see these hugely impactful counties or states coming down to, yeah. you know, fractions of a percent of the total population. So it is, uh, I agree that it, I mean, obviously we're a long way away. We're still 11 months away, but it does seem like it will be a close election. The point is it's going to be close. And if it's close, it's going to be con- for sure going to be contested. If it's contested, well, you know, uh, that could be messy. Uh, and I think that's a, a threat, uh, you know, to sentiment, which is already pretty fragile. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a recession is a loss of faith, uh, you know, you know, and with sentiment as fragile as it is, if it takes another knock, you know, people could kind of pack it in. The consumer doesn't do what I expect and we don't have the year I expect. I got it. Okay. So it's not necessarily that there's historical precedent that during an election year, no. you know, the economy behaves one way or another. It's more just given the political realities right now, there's just more chance for you know, yeah, uh, there's just more chance for a surprise, I guess, or a loss of faith, like you said. Maybe it won't be a surprise because we're all talking about it already. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but yes. one of the fundamental strengths of the American economy is the stability of the uh, of government, you know, the political process, the rule of law. And uh, if that's shaken, challenged, then that goes to the core of what makes the U.S. economy Exceptional, and it is exceptional, uh, and so you know that poses a threat, uh, you know, to our, to you know economic growth in the coming year, and and of course, you know, even after that longer run. I'd love to turn a little bit towards our focus here, the show on the housing market. In your report, you detail some interesting information about the housing shortage. We've talked about this, but probably not for a while on the show. Can you just tell us a little bit about the nature of the housing shortage in the United States? Yeah, we don't have enough homes, <laughs> uh, particularly affordable homes, both for rent and for home ownership. And this happened in the wake of the financial crisis, the bust. I mean, you know, housing seems to be always at the center of our pro- economic problems. I don't know why. Uh, but, you know, before the financial crisis 15 years ago, the problem was overbuilding. Builders put up too many homes, vacancy rates uh, soared, and that was the basis for the collapse in the housing market that occurred uh, in the crisis 2008, 2009, into 2010. House prices fell 20, 25%, peaked to drop depending on the index. The bottom really wasn't until 2011. That wiped out a lot of builders. Uh, it was such a Wipeout crash. It wiped out builders. It wiped out a lot of infrastructure for building. It also raised the cost of building because a lot of local governments that rely on property tax revenue got nailed by the fall in housing values. And so then they jacked up fees on permits in construction. And so the fixed cost for building rose very sharply in that period. And so that's really uh, made it difficult to ramp up uh, home building, particularly for lower priced po- uh, homes. That have lower margins. Again, those, they, the builder has to cover those higher fixed costs. 
And it really wasn't until right before the Fed started raising interest rates that home building seemed to have kind of gotten back to where it needs to be, not to solve the for uh, the shortage, of the uh, just simply to ensure that it wasn't going to get any worse, that we were putting up enough homes to meet the underlying demand. And by the way, going back to the point about immigration, underlying demand may even be stronger than we anticipate because we've got all these immigrants coming into the country, and we probably much more than we think. And it's adding to the problems at the kind of the affordable part of the market and then adding to our homelessness issues and that kind of thing. But if you, you know, if you kind of do the arithmetic, and so right now we have a vast shortage, the vacancy rates are low, the homeowner vacancy rate is at a record low, and we've got data back, you know, until just after World War II. Uh, and that, um, uh, by my calculation, we're short uh, by about 1.7 million homes, both for rent and for, for home ownership. Increasingly, it's left less of an issue on the rental side, more of an issue on the home ownership side. So they, this just exacerbates the problems potential first-time home buyers have getting into the market, you know, because they have this shortage of homes, uh, you know, lots of other things going on, high mortgage rates, high house prices, soft income growth. And that just adds up to a world of, I, I can't afford anything. Uh, I'm just locked out of this market. Uh, I'm going to, and I think it, you know, it does, it's one of the key reasons why, even though the economy is good, people don't think it is. Many people don't because they're paying more for lots of stuff. And one thing that uh, younger people in their thirties and forties know is it's going to be, you know, and something, unless something changes here, unless mortgage rates come in and the house prices uh, weaken a bit, they're not going to be able to afford to become a first-time home buyer anytime soon. Yeah, it, it definitely impacts sentiment for sure. And um, like you said, it doesn't seem like there's an immediate fix. I did have a couple questions for you to follow up. What one of the things I look at quite a lot is that there's been a lot of multifamily housing for rent, rental units being built in the U.S. over the last couple of years, and. There's some evidence that in certain markets, there is an oversupply. If you look at absorption rates, they're turning negative. So how do you square those two things? Like on one hand, we don't have enough housing. On the other hand, we're a little bit oversupplied. Can you help make sense of that? Yeah, the, the oversupply you talk about is entirely at the high end of the multifamily market. It's these big apartment complexes that are going up in big urban centers. I live in Philly. And, you know, if you go down to downtown Philly, massive projects, you know, luxury apartments that are going in, mm -hmm. that part of the market is oversupplied. Uh, vacancy rates are rising and rents are, you know, flattening out there, uh, coming down in many – and when I say I'm Philly, but that's symptomatic of what's going on in D.C., New York, Boston, Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., you know, lots of markets around the country. Oh, yeah. So – uh, there, no problem. Uh, you know, it's really in the affordable rental. You know, kind of uh, for people that have lower income. It's not. It's not lifestyle rental. It's not. You know, people. Some people want to rent. It's a lifestyle. I want to live in an urban, mm -hmm. you know, center, and I and a uh, and I have that lifestyle, and therefore I need. I'm going to rent. This is uh, you know rental because of necessity. I have no choice. I can't afford to own a home. I have to rent, and it's that part of the market where. The shortage is more severe. And by the way, if I exclude the kind of high-end rental, the shortage is even greater than 1.7 million units, obviously. That 1.7 million is for the entire market. If I exclude that, the shortage is probably 2.5 million, something, something along those lines. 
even even much worse. So it's similar to something we see with the the purchase market, which is there just seems to be a mix a mix match between the product available and what demand is. Uh, you know, we don't build a lot of small homes or first time home buyers anymore that are affordable, and seems like a similar thing happens in the rental market as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's the same kind of dynamic uh, playing out. The kind of the entry level builders focus on high priced homes because that's where the margins are. They can make a lot more money. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not as focused. That's that was changing. You know, uh, you know, right up until when the Fed started raising interest rates, you could feel like uh, D. H. Horton, for example, the biggest home, uh, home builder in the country, mm-hmm. really was increasingly focused on entry level housing. So that was changing, and I, I assume that's going to be the case on the other side of all this mess. But but uh, you know that was that was very recent. Uh, you're right. Uh, builders had been focused on the high end of the market. Mark, do you know what level of construction we need to get to to start making a dent in this deficit? Well, I think the kind of the underlying uh, uh, level of of construction, single family, multifamily starts that we need just to kind of maintain the current vacancy rate. Not. Uh, for the shortage not to become even worse is probably around 1.6, 1.7 million units. Uh, and uh, we're, you know, right now we're a little bit shy of that. We just got one more data point though that was somewhat encouraging, I, It's but it's only one data point. Mm-hmm. For the month of November, housing starts single family, multifamily got to like 1.55 million, you know, something like that. So that's, that's pretty good. I'm pretty encouraged by that. We got to see better than that, but you know, that's, uh, that's helpful. You know, the one area where I think we, it would be good if uh, policymakers could focus is on the, for manufactured housing, because the other source of supply on the home ownership side is uh, manufactured homes. That's about a hundred thousand units per annum. And of course that's affordable. Uh, and that's where you can get some really good productivity gains through improved manufacturing processes. And so, you know, if I were king for the day, I might need a week or a month, but, you know, if I were king, <laughs> I would focus on, you know, that market and how to uh, get that going and produce a couple hundred thousand, 250,000 a year. We've, we've done it in the past. I mean, at the heyday of the manufactured home building. Oh, really? Yeah. It was it was a, a bit of a bubble, uh, you know, uh, but if you go back into, uh, I think it was the 80s, there was a period when we were producing a, a quarter million manufactured homes uh, a year. Yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that. It just seems like such an obvious solution. You know, I, I appreciate all the other things that people are doing, but I, I, correct me if you if you disagree, but to me, the only way to fix the housing market is more supply. We just need a lot more supply. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everything else is a stopgap and not that stopgaps shouldn't be attempted, but like it is... It, we just dramatically need more homes and that seems like a good option. Yeah. And some things where you, you know, the intuition is, oh, if, if I could only, you know, help people with their down payment, or if I could only lower the mortgage rate somehow, or make mortgages assumable or portable, that'll solve the problem. Uh, no, uh, you know, I, I, the, I get the intuition, yeah. I get it, but it, it, you know, all you're doing is juicing up demand. If there's no supply, all you, that happens is you just jack up rents and prices and yeah. not helping anybody. And it's obviously very costly. So, uh, you know, uh, I really focus on the supply side. I mean, there's some demand side things that I think we could do, uh, but they, you know, there are things that would kick in later once we get more supply coming into the market. All right. Thank you. Well, Mark, this has been super helpful. But before we get out of here, 
I got to know, what's your outlook for housing prices for 2024? Yeah, you remember, Dave, I said I forecast lots of stuff. Some I'm confident, some not so much. <laughs> this is one of those not so much. Good, me neither. <laughs> one of the surprises for me in uh, 2023, you know, because prices started falling when the Fed jacked up rates in 22. And coming into 23, it looked like we were going to see more price declines. And I expected it to res- help store ref- affordability. Instead, no. I mean, prices have firmed and actually are up a little bit. And, you know, the actual prices today are, I think they're at an all-time record high, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not by a lot. You know, the prices really haven't gone anywhere for a year and a half. But nonetheless, I mean, they haven't fallen to a significant degree. Uh, I, I still believe that we will see some price weakness here over the next couple, one, two, three years. And that goes to uh, restoring affordability. And you can only restore affordability if... Mortgage rates decline, I expect that. Incomes to rise, I expect that. But I also think we need some uh, decline in house prices for that arithmetic to work for people to get mortgage payments to a place where they can afford them. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens is, I may have talked about this when we met last time, but I think what happens is life happens. Events, life events, divorce, death, children, job change. And once that, you can... You can those things can happen, and you can put off a move for a while. But after a period of time, you know the home you're living in doesn't make any sense given your demographic need. You're going to move, and my 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 thesis is that when these folks start moving, then uh, you know they're going to have to cut the price uh, at least a little bit Mm -hmm. to make the arithmetic work for the buyer to get a buyer for the home. And that, but that doesn't play out in a month or a quarter. That plays out over two, three years, you know, something like that. Or the the other scenario could be that, you know, I feel as likely could happen, prices just stay flat for three, four years, right? And let, and let, because there's, there's a so-called reservation house price. Like, like I know, I know this myself. I, I believe my home is worth what the highest price Zillow ever posted. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's everyone does. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to be very reluctant to sell at a price below that. So I might just wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Until you know rates are down, incomes are up enough that I can sell my home. Yeah, at the price I think it's worth, which is the the highest I've ever sold on Zillow. I think that from my completely observational and anecdotal uh, consensus analysis of economists, I think that's a, what a lot of people think. Yeah, is that prices are going to remain relatively flat, and you can afford. Uh, you can restore affordability over time by, like you said, by mortgage rates coming down slowly, by wages going up slowly. If housing prices just stay flat, affordability will improve. But like you said, it could also be a combination of all three. So appreciate you you giving us your outlook. We know it's very tricky to forecast this right now, but had to get your opinion Mark, if people want to check out the great reports you've put together or follow your work, where should they do that? Uh, there's a website called Economic View, and there's a lot of uh, f- you know free content there. It's a it's a paid site as well, but uh, it, there's a lot of free content, and I put a, a lot of my, the work I do write I you know is posted on the free side of the paywall, so you can take a look at that. Uh, uh, I also tweet at Mark Sandy, so you know feel free. Uh, I enjoy, I actually. Hard to say. I never. I got my. I got my handle at Mark Zandy gazillion years ago. Never used it because I. Did, well, what's this Twitter thing? Why would I do that? <laughs> and so I kind of entered in right before 
all this recent turmoil on Twitter, which I still don't quite understand or get. But anyway, I actually enjoyed the Twitter. You know, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm this, this is going to sound weird, but when I was a kid, we uh, had a teacher who taught us haiku, you know, haiku poetry, the yeah. po- Japanese poetry. And it was very rigid in terms of the syllables and the lines and everything. Yeah, it's like 14 syllables or something like that. I don't even remember. But I loved writing haiku. And I, I love writing tweets. I love it. Because it's so therapeutic. Because you, you have to be very – you have to get into 280 characters. And, you know, that really hones what you're saying. And that really – I think really is quite useful. Honestly, I think the conversation, the economic conversation on Twitter is is something you can't get anywhere else. I I, right. I follow so many different economists and an- analysts on Twitter for something about the format of Twitter just like works really well for this economics financial conversation that doesn't work on any other social media platform in my mind. So I, I follow you there and a lot of the guests that we have here, they're primarily on Twitter. So if you want to follow Mark- We should start a social media for economics. What do you think? It would be like 20 of us, but yeah, I don't know if we'd get the the ad revenue from Twitter, but- uh, I don't know. I don't know. I like that idea somehow. I don't know. We got a couple, we got a lot of lot of downloads here. So maybe we'll get our audience over yeah, to- Yeah, I like that idea. Some, well, it's course. Of course, it's going to, I'm going to be dead wrong, but I still like the idea. So. <laughs> well, you've got one follower already from me. There you go. <laughs> All right, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it and hope to have you back again soon. It was really a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. The show is produced by Kalen Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're gonna be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose.
BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.